This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Wednesday afternoon, March 1st. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. There are reasons to delay taking Social Security, but also some to take it right away as soon as you're eligible. We'll discuss that in our next segment. But right now, voters in Chicago have cast their ballots for mayor and alderman. Now, a runoff election will be necessary in several of those races, including the mayoral contest. Let's get the perspective of Andy Shaw, former political reporter for ABC7 and WBBM political analyst. Andy, thank you for joining us once again today. Since we're on the business hour, Andy, let's talk about the economic proposals of both uh, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Uh, Johnson proposing uh, up to a billion dollars in new taxes, $800 million to be exact, uh, in a variety of forms, including some ideas that have been floating around for a very long time, uh, including the commuter tax, which is so old, it was proposed by uh, Mayor Jane burned 43 years ago. Well, that's interesting for the business viewers and listeners. Uh, Paul Vallis is definitely their candidate because, as you pointed out, Johnson wants to tax corporate profits, the financial exchanges that you talk about so frequently on the noon business hour. He wants to put a tax on home transactions of more than a million dollars on companies that make large profits. And I think the real argument against that is going to be that we've already lost a lot of jobs and businesses and citizens in Chicago over the issue of taxes. And so this proposal, while well-meaning in terms of the programs he wants to fund in the neighborhoods, is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way because it would hit a lot of people who aren't rich Yes, the the low-income people would be exempted from most of these, but middle and upper-middle-class people in all the wards, and that's blacks, whites, and Hispanics, and Asians, would be hit in one way or another by these taxes, and that's not going to go down too well. Along with this suggestion of less money for police at a time of concern with violence in Chicago, so I think from a business perspective, Paul Vallis is going to get a lot of support. On the other hand, people who want a more progressive, neighborhood-focused uh, pro- uh, plan are going to go with Brandon Johnson. And then very quickly, Andy, whoever wins on April 4th uh, will now be in charge of the uh, recovery of the loop in the Central Business District from the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and what can they do to either uh, carry that along or find new uses for office buildings that are now empty? Well, that's going to be a real challenge. Uh, We have a condo downtown, and we watched with alarm and sadness as one business after another closed on South Wabash and South Michigan and on Adams and Monroe and those streets. And that's devastating to the economy. It's jobs. It's taxes. Now, here's the good news. There's a new alderman for the downtown ward, Bill Conway, who will team up with 
another downtown area alderman, Brendan Riley and Brian Hopkins, the three of them will form a strong aldermanic triumvirate to try to resuscitate some of those loop areas. That that also has to apply to River North and North Michigan Avenue, which have also been devastated. So at a time when we desperately need more jobs and businesses, the push for higher taxes is going to alarm a lot of people. I've watched the empty storefronts and we need to fill them again. And I'm not sure proposals for higher taxes will do that. Andy Shaw, former political reporter for ABC7 and WBBM political analyst. Thanks for joining us today. I give you his take on the uh, runoff race for mayor, April 4th, Paul Vallis versus Brandon Johnson. Coming up, deciding whether to take Social Security immediately or to wait a little while. An economy of words. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Personal Finance Wednesday. In this segment, we're looking at the pros and cons of delaying Social Security benefits, and that decision can have a big impact on family. We're joined by Ed Jertson, certified financial planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group based in Chicago, the website engagewealthgroup.com. Ed, thank you for joining us today. And when it comes to to the decision over when you should take your Social Security benefits, uh, either before your eligibility birthday or after or maybe years after, it seems like you have to do something that I like to call morbid math in uh, determining uh, what, how you can get the best bang for your buck and how your spouse or partner could benefit from that. Yeah, great great to be with you today, Rob, especially talking about such an important topic. And I think what your listeners first and foremost have to understand about Social Security is it is literally old age and survivor's insurance. It is based on actuarial science on life expectancy. So when Social Security came around in the mid-30s. It was designed as anti-poverty insurance for the elderly, not a personal pension plan or anything like that, but to keep folks out of poverty. So that's, that's really important for everyone to understand. And then the second element, which is really key to your point, is when you take Social Security has so many lifetime, uh, such a lifetime impact, you want to be really diligent about when you're taking benefits and how to take benefits. And and, and and not only just benefits for yourself, but also for your spouse. I mean, what um, what are some of the rules regarding survivorship? And let's start with, you know, what is survivorship in a uh, Social Security context? Yeah, so for two individuals who are receiving Social Security, a, hu- a husband and a wife uh, or spouses together, ultimately they get a joint benefit as long as one of them or both of them are still living. When one of the spouses uh, is deceased or passes away, you lose the smaller of the two benefits. And this is why when you're when you're claiming benefits, it's so important to think about claiming benefits early because men in general, right, we have lower life expectancies. So if we claim benefits before our full retirement age, that is a permanent reduction in future benefits and any future cost of living adjustments. So be very careful about taking benefits early because to your point, not only are you gonna impact, again, both spouses, but when one spouse passes away, you're going to receive those lifetime lower benefits, which could have a material financial impact later down the road. And then uh, just uh, given you know, our, our changing attitudes toward aging um, and people working longer, do you find that more people are therefore delaying their Social Security until they retire at the age of 69, 70 or 71? Yeah, so you get an 8% credit per year every year you delay Social Security, your benefits. So it's if you're still working 
and you're you're past your full retirement age, which is anywhere between 65 and 67. So you're past your full retirement age, you get an 8% increase. So yeah, if you're still working and you can delay those benefits, that extra 8% is an added boost to, again, those, those lifetimes of payments. So yes, if you're able to delay those benefits, absolutely. But also remember that we've just been through a pretty horrific economic element with the, with the pandemic. And so I've got you know clients and others who were unintended retirees, which means that we were looking at taking benefits later, but then we had to take them earlier because of job outlook and the such. So, you know, the, the rule of thumb of waiting to age 70 is, is a good rule of thumb, but realize that everyone has an individual plan. Ed Jertson, certified financial planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. The website, EngageWealthGroup.com. Coming up next, applying Warren Buffett's secret sauce to your investing plan. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Conversation that's on the money. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. In his latest letter, Warren Buffett credits his success with dividend-paying stocks to what he calls a secret sauce. Let's learn more from Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Now, there has been like libraries of books written about Warren Buffett's investment philosophies and strategies and how you can uh, implement them and, and to benefit yourself. But coming out and saying that uh, my my success with dividend-paying socks is my secret sauce is kind of the equivalent of saying, wait a minute, Rosebud was the sled? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's actually almost too simple to be true. But basically, the secret sauce is his willing to, willingness to hold on to good quality companies that are paying dividends and hold on to them for the long term. And so the secret sauce is the willingness to stick with them through thick and thin. So it's not really all that secret. I think he put secret sauce, secret sauce in inverted quotes, uh, inverted commas, I mean, so to, uh, to, to uh, have tongue firmly in cheek about it. But uh, it turns out that what I found when I went back to try to uh, test uh, his, his approach, going back 100 years, in fact, I found that you don't really have to have uh, extraordinary ability to pick stocks to take advantage of it. It turns out that dividends tend to grow. The companies that pay dividends tend to be good quality companies to begin with, and they grow their dividends over time. They're loath to cut their dividends. And so it's a, it's a relatively, relatively secure stream of income and historically has grown at a faster rate than inflation. So even though you might look at a company right now and find that its dividend yield is not quite as good as uh, the 10-year treasury or a CD at your local bank, nonetheless, it's a good good bet that over time that dividend yield will grow. 
And uh, you'll get not only more from the dividend, but you have the underlying stock to boot, which probably will have gained money along the way, too. Well, as you point out uh, in your column, the the old joke on Wall Street that the long term lasts from lunch until dinner and that maybe the strategy doesn't necessarily benefit the the professional investor or trader, but that could benefit uh, someone who is uh, an amateur investor or someone who is just uh, trying to build a, a savings portfolio or a retirement portfolio. Absolutely. I think the the key is that uh, unlike the professionals on Wall Street who who have to show results right now or this month or this quarter, uh, you or I are able to uh, to buy good quality companies and hold them for the long term. And by, there are a number of approaches to good quality companies, but again, you don't have to have any extraordinary ability. There's a exchange traded fund out there that focuses on what's known as the dividend aristocrats. These are companies that have increased their dividend every year in a row for 25 years. That's an extraordinary uh, run of success. And there, there are a handful of such companies. And you can buy one, uh, just but one transaction, you can buy an ETF that invests in all those companies, and it's had an excellent record. And it sounds like uh, even though uh, Secret Sauce uh, is tongue firmly in cheek, quote unquote, it also, that advice seems to be very accessible too. Well, that's right. I think the, the the key here is not that uh, that you or I need to know something that others don't in order to succeed. What we have to have is that willingness, which is very rare, uh, to hold for the long term. Most of us get scared when the market goes down and we sell our good quality stocks at bargain basement prices and almost inevitably over time regret it. So it's it's the willingness to hold over the long term that actually makes the difference, not that we have some intellectual insight or some theoretical insight that no one else does. Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington. Thank you for joining us today. Still ahead in Personal Finance Wednesday, strategies to pay for college. This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio. WBBM, the race for mayor of Chicago in several aldermanic contests, now moves to an April runoff. There's relief in sight for people who need insulin to survive. In Personal Finance Wednesday, the cost of college is daunting, so you need to start planning early. The computer chip shortage could impact your ability to replace a debit or credit card. WBBM Business, the markets are lower. The Dow is down 19 points. The NASDAQ is down 68. The S&P 500 is down 18. 51 degrees right now under mostly sunny skies, going up to 57 today at 1231. Topping our news at the half hour. Ballots are still being counted from yesterday's municipal vote, but the Board of Elections is already looking ahead. That story from WBBM's Maya Martinez. We're off to the races to get everything prepared for the April 4th runoff. Max Bever is Director of Public information for the Chicago Board of Elections. He says even though the ballot is set for the mayor's race, the same can't be said for the aldermanic races, due in part to the remaining vote-by-mail ballots. We've got 99,000 outstanding. We expect 60 to 80. Uh, those make a big difference in the alderperson races because those races can come down to double digits, even single digits. Bever says the Board of Elections has until March 14th to count all ballots that qualify. We're going to try to turn around those official results by March 15th. He says that's because runoff ballots need to be printed and sent out ahead of the April 4th runoff. And the Board of Elections has to also, once again, prepare for early voting. My Martinez, 105.9 WBBM. Drug companies
company Eli Lilly says it will reduce the price of some of its most commonly prescribed insulins by 70%. This is CBS News medical contributor Dr. David Agus. Patients many times have been required to ration the use of insulin because they can't afford the actual amount that would be optimal. And there's been a lot of talk from the White House and from patient groups about this unaffordable cost of insulin. You can get predatory practice by pharmaceutical or biotechnology companies to raise the prices. Some people with diabetes can face annual costs of more than $1,000 for the insulin they need in order to live. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are lower. We're joined by Art Hogan, chief market strategist, B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Art, thank you for joining us today. Uh, uh, stocks started the day lower. The Dow uh, popped into positive territory for a little while, but now it's uh, it's below the uh, center line once again. What uh, can, what explain the intraday activity, especially as far as the Dow is concerned? Yeah, I would say this. You, you know, you don't have to look much further than the release of economic data that we got today and the reaction in the Treasury curve, and, and that's really been driving the bus largely for most of the month of uh, February. And clearly what we've seen is the Treasury is being sold, so the yields are moving higher. So, for instance, the yield on the two years at uh, 490, and that's up 7.5 basis points, but it's up about 60 basis points in the last four weeks. The same is true of the 10-year that uh, we watched so closely. That touched 4% today. So when yields are rising, it's, it's a manifestation of economic data that's pointing to a Fed that is likely to uh, raise rates and keep them there for a while. And when that happens, uh, finally, the equity markets are catching up to that tune and, and, and reacting in kind. So for about four weeks uh, in the end of January, and the beginning of February, the market uh, wasn't paying attention to the Treasury curve. It is now. It's taking that message seriously. And we're in a bit of a grind lower here, and unless and until we get more economic data that disproves our concerns about the Fed or the Fed actually meets and does something to surprise us, which uh, is highly unlikely. And it seems like the uh, the hotter than expected or better than expected economic numbers that came out uh, in about activity in the month of January kind of upended everybody's uh, interest rate strategies for 2023. And a lot of the uh, market activity, especially uh, with the with the bond market too, uh, seems to reflect that uncertainty. They had a, a pretty good idea or a pretty good sense of uh, where the Fed might stop their hiking cycle and when they could potentially uh, start cutting interest rates. But now, uh, once again, we're back into that uh, your guess is as good as mine mode. Yeah, unfortunately, that's probably true sitting around the table at the FOMC is their guess is as good as anybody's because I don't know that they know, being data dependent, where they end up stopping. I I sense that consensus now has moved from call it four and three quarters to five and three eighths or somewhere between five and a quarter, five and a half. Right. So I think that's the new consensus. The street and the Fed are currently aligned, at least from what we know, we'll get a new set of dot plots at the next meeting. The last one we saw was from December, so it's dated, and that was before all that January data you spoke of. It came in stronger than expected. So whether it was uh, January retail sales, the jobs report, CPI, PPI, the PCE, all of the data is pointing to a a, a resurgence of economic activity, which unfortunately people uh, connect to that. The Fed will have to go higher and stay there for longer. And uh, we'll we'll learn more um, before the March meeting. We'll learn a lot at the March meeting. Before that meeting, we get a jobs report next week, and we'll get a, a fresh CPI and PPI. So we'll see if that narrative changes. I think at some point in time, we know we're closer to the end of this rate hike cycle. That's the good news. And when the Fed does pause, that'll likely be a tailwind for markets. And we can start looking at economic data with the lens that good news is actually good news.
And I guess this is the rub here, and, and, and that is the idea that there are some sectors of the economy that are already in a recession. If you look at housing, uh, you see contraction in manufacturing. So there are certain sectors of the economy where you can definitely say the interest rate hikes are having their intended effect. And does it have to be – could it be a sum of the economy needs to slow down proposition, or does the whole kit and caboodle have to slow down? No, I think you tied it up into a perfect bow there. What we refer to as a rolling recession, which means exactly the way you disseminated that. It's, sectors can go through their own recessions and come out the other side. The entire economy doesn't need to. And, and that's what we're feeling right now. Housing, for sure. Prices have come down every month since July. Activity is, 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 is back to a place we haven't seen since the beginning of the pandemic in terms of Pending home sales, new home sales, existing home sales. So you're right. Housing certainly falls in that category. Manufacturing continues to be a contraction. We just got that report today from the uh, ISM. So that's still in contractionary territory. So, yes, we know there are sectors that have already gone through their – are in or, or going through their recession and likely come out the other end. I suspect that the, the what's keeping things – from the overall economy from going to recession is the services sector is still very strong, whether you look, look at the casinos or hotels or airlines, and, and that, that continues to be the case. And therefore, the consumer has shifted their uh, consumption patterns uh, to services from goods, and, and, and likely that is going to keep us afloat. Now, if we were to to predict a, a soft landing, uh, uh, avoiding a recession, I suspect we'd need to see the services sector slow down a little bit, but not crash. We need to see housing plateau and activity pick up. And I think that that's the way we would orchestrate this. So that would be the softish type landing. We don't ever go into a recession, but some sectors you know, start doing better and the sectors that are red hot start cooling off just a bit. Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist, B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Personal Finance Wednesday, finding a way to pay for college. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Personal Finance Wednesday. The spiraling cost of a college education can be panic-inducing for students and parents. Let's get some strategic help from Mark Horner, Wealth Advisor, Fairhaven Wealth Management, based in Wheaton, Illinois. The website is Fairhaven Wealth. Com. Mark, thanks for joining us today. And uh, there is nothing that can ruin a good night's sleep for an adult. Quite like thinking about how uh, they can pay for their child's college education. And uh, what are some uh, strategies that uh, people can do to uh, get the most out of their uh, their, their tuition dollar uh, outside of uh, inventing a uh, revolutionary product that could uh, uh, result in a company getting a trillion dollar market cap and you become one of the wealthiest people on earth. That's a, that's, <laughs> a, that, that, that's my plan, Mark. I'm working on that right, right now. Well, that's I suppose one way. To, that is one way to go, Rob. There, there, uh, there are uh, there are other ways to go. And so, like any other financial goal, the uh, the power of time is huge. And so, getting started early is uh, is very important. So that that could mean when uh, you might ha- be uh, expecting a baby. Uh, for the first time you get we're big fans of 529 plan accounts which are college savings accounts to get that started and then get some autumn we're also big fans of automating contributions and so get contributions going into that 529 plan as soon as you can and and they've got a whole lot of flexibility which actually the secure act uh 2.0 which was just passed 
added to the flexibility that unused uh, balances in 529 plans might be able to be rolled over to your child's Roth IRA. So another, another planning strategy. But yeah, getting started early is priority number one. And then on the subject of, uh, of, of college savings plans for babies, um, you don't necessarily have to be a parent to, uh, to set that up. Uh, let's say we're coming on baby shower time, and instead of uh, getting something on the list, uh, you decide to gift the baby with a uh, college savings plan. How do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you don't have to be related to somebody to contribute to their 529 plan. So at birthday parties, you could remind aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa that they could make contributions uh, to somebody else's 529 plan. So again, the first thing to do is to get it started and then communicate that around the, around the family to go ahead and encourage them to maybe kick a little bit more into the college plan for junior. And then typically, how many parents or how many people pay the sticker price for their college education? I mean, how much of it is negotiation? How much of it is uh, pounding the pavement for scholarships? How much of it is loans? How much of it is uh, relying on a, uh, a, a parent or relative to help you out? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's going to completely vary based on the, the profile of the family, the, the type of school. But you hit on a very important topic, which we've talked about before, but we just can't uh, share this enough, that there is the ability to uh, potentially negotiate down the cost of college. And so all too often I've seen uh, information starting with uh, first thing you want to do is is, uh, go ahead and pay for college with your own savings. Then you want to borrow as little money as possible. And what really, to me, should be at the top of the list is getting the sticker price down first. And so putting that pressure back on the college or the university to encourage them to get that pencil sharpened to reduce tuition and how they do that is with grants. And uh, there are certainly websites out there that you can look and do research on grants that are available. But again, I'm a fan of just putting it back on the college or university and go ahead and ask the question. It's got no downside to it about what they can do to help make money less of a factor in their college decision. Mark Horner, Wealth Advisor at Fairhaven Wealth Management based in Wheaton. The website, fairhavenwealth.com. Thank you for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Technology Thursday. And still to come, the computer chip shortage could affect your wait for a new or replacement credit card. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It may take longer than usual if you need to get a replacement for a debit or credit card. Let's find out why from Ted Rossman, industry analyst, creditcards.com, based in New York. Ted, thanks for joining us today. I mean, normally, uh, if you either lose your credit card or uh, you receive a fraud alert and it's canceled because it needs to be replaced, uh, you could get that credit card by the end of the next week, or at least in a couple of business days. Uh, That's not the case anymore. Some people are waiting a lot longer, unfortunately, and it really has to do with that semiconductor shortage that's been plaguing so many industries the past couple of years. We don't think of credit cards as electronic devices, but they do contain microchips for security purposes. And credit cards are pretty low on the pecking order for semiconductors. They typically go for things like computers and phones and cars and Therefore, credit card issuers are towards the back of the line, and especially smaller issuers like credit unions and community banks, they're even further down the list. And what type of uh, weight are we uh, talking about these days, especially at the smaller vendors? Especially 
especially with the smaller ones, I'm hearing six weeks, eight weeks, sometimes even 10 weeks or more. Bigger issuers are doing better. In fact, I actually applied for a new credit card with one of the major issuers last week, and the card just arrived today. So that was an eight-day wait, a little longer than usual, but not terrible. Um, but especially with smaller institutions, I'm hearing a lot longer. One fix, if you can, is to try to get your card loaded into a mobile wallet like Apple Pay. Sometimes you can get those credentials even before the physical card arrives. And that's a very good point. I mean, the other piece of advice, I mean, you want to say, well, be be careful with your credit card. Don't leave it at the bar. <laughs> if you're in your 20s, that's always a common, uh, that's that's how you lost your credit card story. You forgot to close out your tab. But uh, the older you get, uh, you have to cancel your credit card more often than not because of a fraud alert. So it's not entirely in your hands. That's true. It could be a fraud alert. It could be a expiration date issue. It could be a newly applied for card. Really, the best fixes I can think of are, one, if you can get mobile access, that, that's often the best workaround. Or two, maybe apply with one of the larger issuers. They tend to be getting more priority treatment from the chip makers than some of the smaller players. And it would also seem, too, that uh, you could say, well, if, if your card is gone and you only have one, um, if your card is gone for a couple of weeks while you're waiting on a replacement, uh, just going cash only, the old-fashioned way, uh, may not be the way to go because a lot of uh, businesses did away with cash transactions uh, during COVID. Yeah, cash is less and less of a thing with each passing day. Debit cards are still quite popular, especially for people that are wary of debt. So, you know, that's an option. I love using credit cards for the rewards. Of course, that's really worth it if you pay in full every month. But I suppose this is also a good reminder that it's good to have at least two cards from a, a credit building standpoint, but also just to have a backup. And you know, maybe you lean into different reward structures or you have at least one with no foreign transaction fees. Some diversification can be helpful. Ted Rossman, industry analyst, creditcards.com, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.